this is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com. D E B B I M A C K dot com under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. Hi, everyone. It's my great pleasure to have with me today one of the most eclectic writers doing crime fiction, among other things, an author in multiple genres, including mystery, westerns, horror, science fiction, and suspense. He has also written for comics. Several of his novels have been adapted for film and TV. My guest is none other than the very awesome Joe Lansdale. Hi, Joe. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Debbie. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's, it's so great to have you on. I first got to know your work as a reviewer for Mystery Scene Magazine, actually. Really? Yes. Oh, that's way back. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It was wonderful. I got these wonderful free books, and I got to read them and talk about them. It was great. <laughs> so my Lansdale starter book was Edge of Dark Water. And boy, uh, did that make an impression on me. Tell well, I'm me, glad it did. Tell me, when you wrote it, did you think of it as a young adult novel? Because it's a very mature young adult novel, and I love that about it. No, I didn't really think of it as a young adult novel. It was the first novel I did for my new publisher, uh, Mulholland, which is a branch of Little Brown. And uh, it was just the story I wanted to tell. And I've always liked stories with uh, young people as protagonists. In fact, I've written quite a few with young people as protagonists. And so it just seemed natural to me. And, uh, you know, it just rolled out. Mm-hmm. I know that feeling, actually, the feeling of something just rolling out. Mm, it's good for you. Yes, it is. I have this one young adult novel I've done, and it's kind of like this real, you know, kind of variation from what I usually do. So, but the fact that you write in multiple genres to me is so encouraging. Um, but let me get to uh, your the latest thing that you have out, which is in the anthology of Time for Violence. Am I correct about that? Uh, yes, there is there is an anthology that has my story in it too, among others. Yeah. I got to tell you, I loved that story. It was like the world's most twisted holiday story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's the highest compliment I can think to make for that particular story. It's awesome. Um, one thing I enjoy about your writing is the way you combine serious social issues with humor. Can you talk a little bit, a bit about Happ and Leonard and where those characters came from? Well, you know, Happ and Leonard really were an accident. I, I was, uh, I had a two book contract for Bantam, which I was very excited about, for two crime novels. And the first one I wrote was uh, Cold in July. And when I finished Cold in July, I thought, you know, I'd like to write 
another novel that kind of has that old gold medal novel feel, which the Fawcett gold medal was a branch that did crime, and then there was another branch of it that did westerns and, uh, you know, and so on, science fiction. And I'd collected those gold medal novels for years, and I liked the way they told stories, and I liked the attitude. So I wanted to capture something with something of that tone. And uh, I had always thought that I would like to write something about the the era that I grew up in, that I became uh, an adult in, which was the 60s, early 70s, and about civil rights and the Vietnam War and the kind of contradiction of uh, people and ideas of that era. And so I don't think I was conscious of it when I started writing the novel. But I said, I'm going to use my own background to a great extent in this book. Now, I'm happy is not me, but he's damn close. And uh, he went to uh, prison for uh, being against the Vietnam War, and I uh, dropped out of school to be drafted to kind of protest the Vietnam War, so therefore I was drafted. I said I wouldn't go. I thought I was going to prison for 18 months, but I ended up, they gave me a one Y for whatever reason. I think they threw me a bone, actually, and... Uh, sent me home. But I use that as kind of the basis for HAP and the fact that his experiences in the 60s and the feeling that in the 80s, a lot of that idealism had gone the way of the passenger pigeon. And I wanted to sort of bring that back up and try to have HAP experience that again and be touched by it. But I also wanted to show that there were a lot of divisions and sides of it. And the fact that uh, really young people had sort of read, led that, uh, uh, quote, revolution, unquote, because it was really a varied group of different ideas. But because they had and they were young, they didn't really have a realistic view of what was going on. That doesn't mean the idealism was wrong, but it meant the expectations were a little bit dramatic. And so I had this in the background, and I, I had uh, this sort of a story I wanted to tell that took place where I grew up and took place around the kind of people I grew up with and the kind of people we, that we were in the 60s and early 70s, or a lot of us were. And so I just started writing from that standpoint, and Pat was the only character. I, you know, I didn't plan for there to be a, a buddy uh, book at all, and I had Leonard in it as just kind of a side character, but all of a sudden Leonard starts really becoming prominent as I'm writing it, and I had this white, liberal, um, uh, heterosexual whose best friend was a black, gay Republican who had been to Vietnam and had different viewpoints than uh, Hap had. And, I, and as I wrote it, I realized this was really good because it gave you a chance to kind of explore uh, both sides and both kinds of people and without, you know, making it a lecture. And uh, I just found I really, really liked these two characters. And I felt so close to Hap because of the connections with my own life. And I felt close to Leonard because he was made up of a variety of different people I had known in my life. And so I felt like when I talked to him, I was partly talking to a flip side of myself in some ways, and yet also this combination of characters that I had melted together to make Leonard. And uh, then I brought in Hap's ex-wife, and I did have an ex-wife, but I want to rush to say that was not my ex-wife. <laughs> and uh, so this this was all kind of, you know, but I had been through the whole, uh, you know, early divorce as a young man and during this, 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 uh, this, 60s or early 70s and the, and the disappointment that a lot of us had 
in how we thought we were going to change the world. And we, again, uh, we were naive, which doesn't mean that the intent is naive, but it means our expectations of how it would be done and how easily it might be accomplished were. Um, so that was all in the novel, more to me than, than the storyline. And I, I put people that conflicted with what Leonard believed and, and what Hap believed because they were more extremists, but yet there was this connection that he had with these people in a funny way and with his ex-wife, who was uh, an extreme idealist and who was also somebody who you know, abandoned men easily because she always wanted a, a, a new, fresh idea. She was in love with being in love more than anything else. Yet she was at the heart and at the tr bottom of it the most idealistic of all of them and the most sincere about her idealism, I think. And um, so maybe there's a character, Chubb, that might have been equally so. But I just sort of let that story unravel. And then when I got through with it, um, I thought I had left Happen Leonard alone, and uh, I tried to write another book for a new publisher I was with. I moved from Bantam to uh, Warner Mysterious Press, and I wrote an entire book, and I wasn't happy with it, and the publisher was like a little not sure what to do with it, because uh, it was really dark. And I said, you know what, let me, let me go home and think. So I went home, by the time we flew home from New York, where we had been visiting with our, our editor at that time. My, my wife was with me. We got home and immediately Hap started speaking to me. And I realized he'd been trying to speak to me for a while and I wasn't listening because I thought I was through with that book. I thought I was through with that character. And as this character spoke to me, I sat down and in about three and a half, four months, I wrote a brand new novel and I wrote it in a much uh, more relaxed style, like Savage Season had been. But I think by that point, for Mucho Mojo, which is the second in the series, which many people thought was the first because the Bantam edition had gone out of print at that time, um, I think I began to realize how deep their relationship was, Happen Leonard's, and I began to realize how traumatic their experiences in life had affected them. Uh, you know, they were dealing with post-traumatic stress in ways of a different sort. Leonard's would have been from Vietnam, of course, which would have been a much more dramatic sort. But, you know, Happ had been to prison. He had been disappointed in what he thought the world could be. And so they were both dealing with these things, which in some ways changed them and made them different people. And when they were together, they made a third entity that was both of them. And so by that point, I was I was caught up who the characters were. And I, I, I hope that wasn't too long, but I was trying to answer your question in full, you know, yeah, about who they were. Answer. That's a great answer. Thank you. That, um, that, that That's so true. All about that, about the 60s and the youthful stuff and personifying yeah. those issues within real people, you know, yes. people in a novel interacting. And well, the you know, that, the thing, the thing that, yeah, the thing that I didn't know when I was young was that how many people were just on, on board with it because it was the fad of the time for them. I mean, long hair, beads, exactly. uh, you know, being anti-establishment, and then as soon as it was time to, you know, they got a little older, as soon as it was time to get up, hit up against the wall, they bailed, you know, and I realized that it was just easier because to be the person that stands up against the war or to be the person that stands up for civil rights 
it has consequences. And, uh, you, you know, and so, I mean, I suffered some of those consequences. For me, it wasn't a particularly uh, Im- important because what I was trying to do was more important, though certainly a lot of people did more than I ever did. But I, I, I begin to have that feeling of faded ideal wounded optimism is i guess what you would say because i begin to realize that most people don't believe anything very deeply if they you know character is what you what, what you have when you know you're under stress when you're under uh, a bad situation and you maintain that character but if you just blow with the wind it's not character nor is it a really dedicated belief and you know, I don't want to overstate all this too much, but what I'm trying to do is give a background to how I saw these characters and how they were rooted in my own life. And so that when I wrote about them, even, and some books vary, some books are more just entertainment, excitement, and some are, inter- they're all supposed to be entertainment, but some are, are purely that more, and the best ones, I believe, have much more uh, information about social issues and political issues, and they don't always come down with an exact uh, stance, you know, because uh, life is just full of little disappointments, and uh, I try to put those in the stories, and yet make them something that people want to pick up and read, no matter what their convictions are. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, it's funny because I'm not far behind you in terms of age. I'm old mm-hmm. enough to remember the hippies, but too young to have been a part of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. that feeling of disappointment in in the potential there is something yeah. that I eventually felt in the seventies. It was like, hey, where yeah. did you guys go? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is that when people talk about the sixties, they're also really talking about the early seventies yeah. because you know there's there's no exact time when this started. I mean, you can date it back to the fifties and further when the when you know people are further back when people were interested in trying to correct racial uh, situations or or, or or protesting the war early on there were people that said hey you know this is probably not a good idea but it was just from about the middle sixties when music began to be welded more to social issues you started seeing that become more important and music was kind of like the soundtrack of our, our of our lives at that time and I guess that's true of every generation, but this was, you know, the the Beatles and people like that had a lot of social agenda in their music as well as just, you know, very well written tunes. And that all went on over into the 70s. And, and when the Vietnam War ended and that threat of the draft ended for a lot of people, so did their idealism because they were no longer uh, in trouble. You know, I have friends that were opposed to the Vietnam War that are Trump voters and uh, they were they were for civil rights. And, you know, I I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know where they how they went that way. I mean, they get to choose who they want to vote for. But it's it's different, too, than knowing people that were always like that and then knowing people who weren't like that. Who switched? I mean, and of course, I also have people I've known who were conservatives who've gone the other way. But it's just amazing to understand how transient people's views are uh, if they're not really truly dedicated to those views or how easily they can be changed if it just makes it easier to get along in society sometimes. Because it's hard sometimes to be an outsider. Like, 
In my case, it's really not that hard because I'm, I've always been sort of independent. I, I work for other people. I never really cared what they thought, but I've always gotten along with a wide variety of people, a wide variety of interests. I'm, uh, you know, I'm politically different than a lot of the people here. Not all. There's a lot more of us in the um, uh, moderate to liberal camp than you would expect. But I'm also an atheist in a very religious society. And so, you know, those things, I think, can wear the edge off a lot of people, and they eventually just go with the flow. And uh, I didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to have characters, at least in those Happen Leonard books, which we're talking about now, that did that. That's so cool. Um, let's see. I happened to catch your interview on the Prolific Writer podcast, where you mentioned uh -huh. that you read pretty much all the time. I'm like that, yes. too. Talk about the importance of reading, please. Well, you, you know, I, I think that most people that write begin, uh, begin being a writer or want to be a writer because they love to read. And a lot of times um, what happens to some of those writers is that the more they write, the less they read because it's so demanding. And can wear you down. But a lot of times the real reason that people cease to read is they fail to have the exact same experience that thrilled them in the first place. And they don't realize that there are so many new and different kinds of experiences that you can have out there. Some writers continue to give you that experience no matter what over a lifetime of work. But I can say that my sentimental favorite writer, for example, is of all time is Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, a lot of his things have dated about social issues, stuff like that, but it makes no difference. This was the writer I'd already wanted to write, but this is a writer that I, when I read him, I knew I had to write. And so that writer gave me an impetus uh, to get excited about books. Well, then I branched out and read other books. And when you start reading books and you find that it's the same familiar story over and over, sometimes you lose interest. So you to be a writer and to be a, a dedicated reader, which gives you about as much great satisfaction as anything, you also have to be willing to get outside your comfort zone. And uh, I read, I used to read almost a book a day at certain times in my life when I had that uh, time and also ability. I, I, I could also read a little faster than I can now, although I'm, I'm by most standards a fast reader. But I still read three and four novels a week, or books a week, not always novels, sometimes nonfiction, collections of short stories, what have you. But that's about my average, you know, and when I don't do that, it's usually because I'm I'm spending the time cramming on, on a, a series of TV shows or movies or I'm listening to radio shows. I, I do martial arts a lot. I've been doing that all my life, 56 years. I'm older now, but I still keep my hand in that by teaching. And so you, you can have a bigger life than just reading books. And if you're working a full-time job, you might not be able to read three or four a week, but you know what? You probably can read one, and you probably can certainly read a couple, three a month. And if you want to write, that's what gives you the fuel, and that's what gives you the ambition, because you may not necessarily be competing against other writers, though some people do that, but you can be inspired by other writers. And, and so many writers gave me uh, an understanding of how to do better prose. And you start out when you're really young, you're kind of confident in these other writers, but pretty soon you start to uh, if you're doing it right, you start to abandon that and find your own voice, but you're still straining through cheesecloth all of these other writers that you've read. And, you know, in my case, it'd be like uh, 
uh, Robert Block, uh, Richard Matheson, Ray Bradbury, uh, Charles Beaumont, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers, Harper Lee, uh, you know, all of these writers. And even now, I, I discovered Ellen Gilchrist about two years ago. And, of course, she's been around a long time and has a stack of work. But except for a couple of short stories, I hadn't read her. Well, now I'm excited about her work. And so that's constantly giving me fuel to do a better job with what I do, even if what I'm doing is nowhere similar to what they've done or are doing. Yes, yes. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, reading widely and reading all the time is exactly that, fuel. Yeah. And, and you have time to do it. You know, I, when I worked full-time jobs, you know, sometimes eight, ten hours a day, maybe I, I you know, I had to uh, maybe read a, a little less per week, but I read every day. I made sure that I did that. I wrote every day. And uh, I'm sure there are people that say, well, I just can't do that. And if you can't, then I leave that to you to make that decision. But a lot of people who think they can't just won't. They might find time to watch four hours of TV or spend, spend time to go out and get a case of beer and sit and, and uh, bullshit with their buddies, but they can't find... 30 minutes to an hour a day to write, or they can't find 30 minutes to an hour a day to read. I, it's hard for me to have a whole lot of sympathy for people who claim they want to write or claim they would like to have time to read, and they won't take that time. But now, I, I've got to the point now in my life, I'm, I'm busy all the time, but I always have heard this old saying that I think is true. If you want something done, ask a busy person uh, because they know how to get it done. That doesn't mean they're always going to do it or be able to do it, but they're more likely to do it if, they, if it interests them. And that's because they've learned to manage their time. I, I manage my time, but it's not like I make a list. I, I don't have that kind of mindset. I, I couldn't follow that kind of program. But every day I, I get my writing done. Uh, I, I read every day. I usually spend a little time watching television or movies. I try to exercise every day. You know, uh, I, I try to teach martial arts uh, private classes at least once a week, and I'm going to do that until I get too old to do it. My wife and I, we travel a lot. I take my laptop with me, and sometimes I'll work 15 minutes while she's in the shower. Uh, when we're on a trip. And then later in the evening, I might work another hour or I might work another 15 minutes. But when I get through and come home, I may not have been able to write as uh, regularly or at the same regular times as I normally do. But I'm often surprised to find out how much time I do write. I was just on a book tour, and it was one of those things where you get up at the crack of dawn and you get on the plane, or you go to the airport, you get on the plane, you fly to where you're going. By the time you get there, it's time to go there. Then when you go there, it's, it's over with, but it's time to go back to the hotel, go to bed early so you can get up the next morning. And I still found time to write most of those days, even if it was just like for 15 or 20 minutes before bed, uh, or midday, occasionally I would I'd be back at the hotel while I was waiting for the, uh, a secondary event. But I did that. I wrote an entire story and a half over that three weeks, which is a little less than I might do if I were home. But you know what? It was done, and I felt better. If I had not written it all, if I had not tried to write it all, I would have been miserable. And so that that keeps that keeps the juices flowing. And so that when I, I don't have those periods where I stop and you feel like you're starting completely over. When I finish a book or a story, I rarely take time off or I take one or two days or one case a week. And then I'm back at it again because it, writing is one of those things that, that the 
the tools get dull very, very quickly. So you have to keep them sharp. And that's how you do it, or at least that's how I do it. So true. For me, it's keeping a journal, you know? Yeah, some people do. I know several people that do. I never could keep one. I, I can't. I can't. By the time I sit down to write a journal, I just write. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny the way my journal has a tendency to go back and forth between ideas for stories and. <laughs> yeah, I, I do understand that totally. Yeah. And you know, my and my belief too is when I talk about what I do, my belief is simple: is that my way is not the only way. It's just for me, it's the best way. And and I arrived at my way though by. A trial and error, especially for the first seven, eight years. But I also arrived that way by paying attention to how other people work and what worked for them. And so I would borrow a little piece from this and a little piece from that. And sometimes I would discard this and I would retain this. And then over a period of time, I found what worked for me. And it's basically, I write in the mornings. I write about three hours and then I don't you know, I usually don't write more that day. I have three hours. I got the rest of the day to do other stuff, which sometimes deals with business. You know, you have other aspects of your business uh, if you're a full-time writer other than the writing itself. But that's the main thing. I get up, three hours, I'm done. Rarely do I, I go back. So every once in a while I'll go back in the afternoon, maybe work on something that's really, you know, driving me or sometimes at night uh you know i've, I've uh, awakened in the middle of the night and gone up and wrote but nine times out of ten the way i work is i get up in the morning i write roughly three hours i have a rule i have to do three to five pages a day and it's rare that i miss that and most of the time i get more than that i might get six i might get eight and uh in some rare cases i've gotten far more than that so, I, and, and I correct as I go, and then I do one little polish when I get done, so that within an average of, you know, it can be three to six months, I usually have a book because um, I showed up every day, and I had those days when I got more than three to five, and I polished as I went. And uh, I've been doing it now for, for for like, you know, 46 years and full-time for right at just under 40. So, you know, you tend to give it regular exercise when it's tied to a passion, and it's also tied to the way you pay your bills. That also helps. Yep. 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 <laughs> <laughs> when it comes down to it, you got to pay the bills. Well, you do, and you know, the, the idea that I hear some people, you know, I'm just an artist and all that, and, and my thing is, like, oh, oh, you know, go to hell. I'm a, I, I try to be an artist, too, but you know, Hemingway cashed his checks. F. Scott Fitzgerald cashed his checks. So did Faulkner. All of those writers were adamant about being paid and wanted to be paid, and most of the time when you hear people say that, they're people who just really are not putting much effort into it or they're not being very successful at it. I'm not saying that's an absolute by any means, but I'm saying a professional writer writes. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of these people that just writes as a hobby. I do it because I love it. When I was very young, I wanted to be a professional writer. When I discovered pencils, I wanted to write. And I remember hearing that Beatles song, Paperback Writer, and I said, yeah, that's what I want to be, you know. Uh -huh. I want to be a paperback writer. Well, we don't have much in the way of paperbacks like they did then. But I understood what, that that song really struck me, you know. And I've always thought that I've, I just, you know, I was one of the luckiest people in the world. I was born relatively poor, you know, not destitute. Uh, my parents were good parents, but my, my father couldn't read or write. Uh, my mother, uh, she had what was then a high school education, which was 11th grade. And, uh, you know, they were poor all their life and worked hard. And, and I worked it. I was 
worked in a rose fields. I worked aluminum chair factories. You know, I, I did janitor work for years. I, I did all kinds of odd and in jobs for years, uh, partly because, and I, and I had some college. I got about 60 hours over four years, I think. But the thing is, is I knew that writing was what I wanted to do. It was what I would do best, and it was what I was geared naturally toward. So I just kept working until I could sell, and then I worked from there to when I can make a living. And then I discovered almost by accident that perhaps I had a little more ability and talent than I expected. And uh, maybe I could, you know, do something a little unusual. Uh, I didn't set out to do a specific thing. I just wanted to do as well as I could, and I was fortunate it worked out for me. Well, that is so wonderful, and it is to our good fortune that it has worked out for you, too. Well, thank you. And um, I could talk to you for three hours or for forever, but um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we finish? No, not really. I mean, I would just say that uh, I've got um, the... Um, Elephant of Surprise, which is my new Happy Leonard book that's out. For those of you that small group that are uh, Ned the Seal fans, the last of the of the trilogy called uh, The Sky Done Rip comes out this fall. Next year is a non-Happy Leonard novel called More Better Deals. It's a crime novel. And uh, Jane Goes North, which is about two women on a road trip. And uh, I think it's you know um, the, my favorite of all the things I've recently written. So oh my that's, gosh. that's what I got. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to look for these books. Oh. <laughs> well, well, I have you. a couple of short story collections too, so a lot of stuff. Oh, very cool. Well, well, thanks again so much for talking to of us. Of course. Show. Of course, I enjoyed it. Oh, this is wonderful. Uh, I've had a wonderful time, and I hope everybody out there listening is, is also appreciating this. This is just fa fabulous stuff. Well, thank you for having me here. You know, and uh, like I always tell people, it, it may not be the best opinion, but it's the only one I got when I'm talking about writing and stuff. <laughs> well, that's cool. And uh, for those listening, uh, look for A Time for Violence and other works by uh, the wonderful Joe Lansdale. Uh, watch Happen Leonard. Um, yes, on Netflix. On Netflix. Also, you you can find Cold in July on Netflix, which is based on my novel, Cold in July. stars Michael C. Hall, Sam Shepard, and Don Johnson, and it's a corker. There and they go. did a really good job, yeah. Bubba Hotep's been on MGM off and on, may still be. And so a lot of that, and Love, Death, and Robots actually has two of my stories. Cool. Well, that's wonderful. Um, this is uh, the final episode of Season 4. But we'll be back in a few months. In the meantime, check out our back episodes. And there are four years of them, so there's plenty to choose from. They're on my website at debbymack.com. D-E-B-B-I-M-A-C-K dot com. And I'll be posting content for podcast supporters on my Patreon page in the interim. So I won't leave you completely high and dry, guys. In any case... Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy reading.